Part 2. Propositions 46 to 49 of the Ethics by Spinoza. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Ethics by Benedict de Spinoza. Translated by R. H. M. Elves. Part 2. Propositions 46 to 49. Proposition 46. The knowledge of the eternal and infinite essence of God which every idea involves is adequate and perfect. Proof. The proof of the last proposition is universal, and whether a thing be considered as a part or a whole, the idea thereof whether of the whole or of a part, by the last proposition, will involve God's eternal and infinite essence. Wherefore, that which gives knowledge of the eternal and infinite essence of God is common to all, and is equally in the part and in the whole. Therefore, part 2, proposition 38, this knowledge will be adequate. Quadere demonstrandum. Proposition 47. The human mind has an adequate knowledge of the eternal and infinite essence of God. Proof. The human mind has ideas, part 2, proposition 22, from which, part 2, proposition 23, it perceives itself and its own body, part 2, proposition 19, and external bodies, Part 2, Proposition 16, Corollary 1, and Part 2, Proposition 17, as actually existing. Therefore, Part 2, Propositions 45 and 46, it has an adequate knowledge of the eternal and infinite essence of God. Quadra demonstrandum. Note. Hence we see that the infinite essence and the eternity of God are known to all. Now, as all things are in God and are conceived through God, we can from this knowledge infer many things which we may adequately know, and we may form that third kind of knowledge of which we spoke in the note to Part 2, Proposition 40, and of the excellence and use of which we shall have occasion to speak in Part 5. Men have not so clear a knowledge of God as they have of general notions, because they are unable to imagine God as they do bodies, and also because they have associated the name God with images of things that they are in the habit of seeing, as indeed they can hardly avoid doing, being as they are men, and continually affected by external bodies. Many errors, in truth, can be traced to this head, namely that we do not apply names to things rightly. For instance, when a man says that the lines drawn from the center of a circle to its circumference are not equal, he then, at all events, assuredly attaches a meaning to the word circle different from that assigned by mathematicians. So again, when men make mistakes in calculation, they have one set of figures in their mind and another on the paper.
if we could see into their minds, they do not make a mistake. They seem to do so, because we think that they have the same numbers in their mind as they have on the paper. If this were not so, we should not believe them to be in error any more than I thought that a man was in error whom I lately heard exclaiming that his entrance hall had flown into a neighbor's hand, for his meaning seemed to me sufficiently clear. Very many controversies have arisen from the fact that men do not rightly explain their meaning, or do not rightly interpret the meaning of others. For, as a matter of fact, as they flatly contradict themselves, they assume now one side, now another of the argument, so as to oppose the opinions which they consider mistaken and absurd in their opponents. Proposition 48. In the mind there is no absolute or free will, but the mind is determined to wish this or that by cause, which has also been determined by another cause, and this last by another cause, and so on to infinity. Proof. The mind is a fixed and definite mode of thought. Part 2. Proposition 11. Therefore, it cannot be the free cause of its actions. Part 1. Proposition 17. Corollary 2. In other words, it cannot have an absolute faculty of positive or negative volition. But, by Part 1. Proposition 28, it must be determined by a cause which has also been determined by another cause, and this last by another, etc. Quadera demonstrandum. Note. In the same way, it is proved that there is in the mind no absolute faculty of understanding, desiring, loving, etc. Whence it follows that these and similar faculties are either entirely fictitious or are merely abstract and general terms, such as we are accustomed to put together from particular things. Thus, the intellect and the will stand in the same relation to this or that idea or this or that volition as lapidity to this or that stone or as man to Peter and Paul. The cause which leads men to consider themselves free has been set forth in the appendix to part one. But before I proceed further, I would here remark that by the will to affirm and decide, I mean the faculty, not the desire. I mean, I repeat, the faculty whereby the mind affirms or denies what is true or false, not the desire wherewith the mind wishes for or turns away from any given thing. After we have proved that these faculties of ours are general notions which cannot be distinguished from the particular instances on which they are based, we must inquire whether volitions themselves are anything besides the ideas of things. We must inquire, I say, whether there is in the mind any affirmation or negation beyond that which the idea, in so far as it is an idea, involves. On which subject see the following proposition and part 2, definition 3, lest the idea of pictures should suggest itself. For by ideas I do not mean images such as are formed at the back of the eye 
or in the midst of the brain, but the conceptions of thought. Proposition 49. There is in the mind no volition or affirmation and negation, save that which an idea, inasmuch as it is an idea, involves. Proof. There is in the mind no absolute faculty of positive or negative volition, but only particular volitions, namely this or that affirmation and this or that negation. Now, let us conceive a particular volition, namely the mode of thinking, whereby the mind affirms that the three interior angles of a triangle are equal to two right angles. This affirmation involves the conception or idea of a triangle, that is, without the idea of a triangle, it cannot be conceived. It is the same thing to say that the concept A must involve the concept B, as it is to say that A cannot be conceived without B. Further, this affirmation cannot be made, part 2, axiom 3, without the idea of a triangle. Therefore, this affirmation can neither be nor be conceived without the idea of a triangle. Again, this idea of a triangle must involve this same affirmation, namely that its three interior angles are equal to two right angles. Wherefore, and vice versa, this idea of a triangle can neither be nor be conceived without this affirmation. Therefore, this affirmation belongs to the essence of the idea of a triangle and is nothing besides. What we have said of this volition, inasmuch as we have selected it at random, may be said of any other volition, namely that it is nothing but an idea. Quarter demonstrandum. Corollary. Will and understanding are one and the same. Proof. Will and understanding are nothing beyond the individual volitions and ideas. Part 2, Proposition 48 and Note. But a particular volition and a particular idea are one and the same by the foregoing proposition. Therefore, will and understanding are one and the same. Quadera demonstrandum. Note. We have thus removed the cause which is commonly assigned for error. For we have shown above that falsity consists solely in the privation of knowledge involved in ideas which are fragmentary and confused. Wherefore, a false idea, inasmuch as it is false, does not involve certainty. When we say, then, that a man acquiesces in what is false and that he has no doubts on the subject, we do not say that he is certain, but only that he does not doubt, or that he acquiesces in what is false inasmuch as there are no reasons which should cause his imagination to waver. See part 2, proposition 44, note. Thus, although the man be assumed to acquiesce in what is false, we shall never say that he is certain. For by certainty we mean something positive. Part 2, proposition 43, and note. Not merely the absence of doubt. However, in order that the foregoing proposition may be fully explained, I will draw attention to a few additional points, and I will furthermore answer the objections which may be advanced against our doctrine. Lastly, in order to remove every scruple, 
I have thought it worthwhile to point out some of the advantages which follow therefrom. I say some, for they will be better appreciated from what we shall set forth in the fifth part. I begin then with the first point, and warn my readers to make an accurate distinction between an idea or conception of the mind and the images of things which we imagine. It is further necessary that they should distinguish between idea and words, whereby we signify things. These three, namely images, words and ideas, are by many persons either entirely confused together, or not distinguished with sufficient accuracy or care, and hence people are generally in ignorance how absolutely necessary is a knowledge of this doctrine of the will, both for philosophic purposes and for the wise ordering of life. Those who think that ideas consist in images which are formed in us by contact with external bodies persuade themselves that the ideas of those things whereof we can form no mental picture are not ideas but only figments which we invent by the free decree of our will. They thus regard ideas as though they were inanimate pictures on a panel, and, filled with this misconception, do not see that an idea, inasmuch as it is an idea, involves an affirmation or negation. Again, those who confuse words with ideas or with the affirmation which an idea involves think that they can wish something contrary to what they feel, affirm or deny. This misconception will easily be laid aside by one who reflects on the nature of knowledge, and seeing that it in no wise involves the conception of extension, will therefore clearly understand that an idea, being a mode of thinking, does not consist in the image of anything, nor in words. The essence of words and images is put together by bodily motions, which in no wise involve the conception of thought. These few words on this subject will suffice. I will therefore pass on to consider the objections which may be raised against our doctrine. Of these, the first is advanced by those who think that the will has a wider scope than the understanding, and that therefore it is different therefrom. The reason for their holding the belief that the will has wider scope than the understanding is that they assert that they have no need of an increase in their faculty of assent, that is, of affirmation or negation, in order to ascend to an infinity of things which we do not perceive, but that they have need of an increase in their faculty of understanding. The will is thus distinguished from the intellect, the latter being finite and the former infinite. Secondly, it may be objected that experience seems to teach us especially clearly that we are able to suspend our judgment before assenting to things which we perceive. This is confirmed by the fact that no one is said to be deceived in so far as he perceives anything, but only in so far as he ascends or descends. For instance, he who feigns a winged horse does not therefore admit that a winged horse exists, that is, he is not deceived unless he admits in addition that a winged horse does exist. 
Nothing, therefore, seems to be taught more clearly by experience than that the will or faculty of assent is free and different from the faculty of understanding. Thirdly, it may be objected that one affirmation does not apparently contain more reality than another. In other words, that we do not seem to need for affirming that what is true is true any greater power than for affirming that what is false is true. We have, however, seen that one idea has more reality or perfection than another, for as objects are some more excellent than others, so also are the ideas of them some more excellent than others. This also seems to point to a difference between the understanding and the will. Fourthly, it may be objected, if man does not act from free will, what will happen if the incentives to action are equally balanced, as in the case of Gurdan's ass? Will he perish of hunger and thirst? If I say that he would, I shall seem to have in my thoughts an ass or the statue of a man, rather than an actual man. If I say that he would not, he would then determine his own action, and would consequently possess the faculty of going and doing whatever he liked. Other objections might also be raised, but as I am not bound to put in evidence everything that anyone may dream, I will only set myself to the task of refuting those I have mentioned, and that as briefly as possible. To the first objection I answer that I admit that the will has a wider scope than the understanding, if by the understanding be meant only clear and distinct ideas. But I deny that the will has a wider scope than the perceptions and the faculty of forming conceptions. Nor do I see why the faculty of volition should be called infinite any more than the faculty of feeling. For as we are able by the same faculty of volition to affirm an infinite number of things, one after the other, for we cannot affirm an infinite number simultaneously, so also can we, by the same faculty of feeling, feel or perceive in succession an infinite number of bodies. If it be said that there is an infinite number of things which we cannot perceive, I answer that we cannot attain to such things by any thinking, nor consequently by any faculty of volition. But, it may still be urged, if God wished to bring it about that we should perceive them, he would be obliged to endow us with a greater faculty of perception, but not a greater faculty of volition that we have already. This is the same as to say that if God wished to bring it about that we should understand an infinite number of other entities, it would be necessary for him to give us a greater understanding, but not a more universal idea of entity than that which we have already, in order to grasp such infinite entities. We have shown that will is a universal entity or idea, whereby we explain all particular volitions, in other words, that which is common to all such volitions. As then our opponents maintain that this idea, common or universal to all volitions, is a faculty, it is little to be wondered at that they assert that such a faculty extends itself into the infinite beyond the limits of the understanding. 
For what is universal is predicated alike of one, of many, and of an infinite number of individuals. To the second objection, I reply by denying that we have a free power of suspending our judgment. For when we say that anyone suspends his judgment, we merely mean that he sees that he does not perceive the matter in question adequately. Suspension of judgment is, therefore, strictly speaking, a perception and not free will. In order to illustrate the point, let us suppose a boy imagining a horse and perceive nothing else. Inasmuch as this imagination involves the existence of the horse, part 2, proposition 17, corollary, and the boy does not perceive anything which would exclude the existence of the horse, he will necessarily regard the horse as present. He will not be able to doubt of its existence, although he be not certain thereof. We have daily experience of such a state of things in dreams, and I do not suppose that there is anyone who would maintain that while he is dreaming, he has the free power of suspending his judgment concerning the things in his dream, and bringing it about that he should not dream those things which he dreams that he sees. Yet it happens, notwithstanding, that even in dreams we suspend our judgment, namely when we dream that we are dreaming. Further, I grant that no one can be deceived so far as actual perception extends. That is, I grant that the mind's imaginations regarded in themselves do not involve error. Part 2, Proposition 17, Note. But I deny that the man does not, in the act of perception, make any affirmation. For what is the perception of a winged horse save affirming that a horse has wings? If the mind could perceive nothing else but the winged horse, it would regard the same as present to itself. It would have no reasons for doubting its existence, nor any faculty of descent, unless the imagination of a winged horse be joined to an idea which precludes the existence of the said horse, or unless the mind perceives that the idea which it possesses of a winged horse is inadequate, in which case it will either necessarily deny the existence of such a horse, or will necessarily be in doubt on the subject. I think that I have anticipated my answer to the third objection, namely that the will is something universal which is predicated of all ideas and that it only signifies that which is common to all ideas, namely an affirmation whose adequate essence must, therefore, in so far as it is thus conceived in the abstract, be in every idea and be in this respect alone the same in all not in so far as it is considered as constituting the idea's essence for in this respect particular affirmations differ one from the other as much as do ideas for instance the affirmation which involves the idea of a circle differs from that which involves the idea of a triangle as much as the idea of a circle differs from the idea of a triangle. Further, I absolutely deny that we are in need of an equal power of thinking to affirm that that which is true is true, and to affirm that that which is false is true. These two affirmations, if we regard the mind, 
are in the same relation to one another as being and not being. For there is nothing positive in ideas which constitutes the actual reality of falsehood. Part 2, Proposition 35, Note, and Proposition 47, Note. We must therefore conclude that we are easily deceived when we confuse universals with singulars and the entities of reason and abstractions with realities. As for the fourth objection, I am quite ready to admit that a man placed in the equilibrium described, namely as perceiving nothing but hunger and thirst, a certain food and a certain drink, each equally distant from him, would die of hunger and thirst. If I am asked whether such an one should not rather be considered an ass than a man, I answer that I do not know, neither do I know how a man should be considered who hangs himself, or how we should consider children, fools, madmen, etc. It remains to point out the advantages of a knowledge of this doctrine as bearing on conduct, and this may be easily gathered from what has been said. The doctrine is good, one, inasmuch as it teaches us to act solely according to the decree of God and to be partakers in the divine nature, and so much the more as we perform more perfect actions and more and more understand God. Such a doctrine not only completely tranquilizes our spirit, but also shows us where our highest happiness or blessedness is namely solely in the knowledge of God, whereby we are led to act only as love and piety shall bid us. We may thus clearly understand how far astray from a true estimate of virtue are those who expect to be decorated by God with high rewards for their virtue and their best actions as for having endured the direst slavery as if virtue and the service of God were not in itself happiness and perfect freedom. 2. Inasmuch as it teaches us how we ought to conduct ourselves with respect to the gifts of fortune or matters which are not in our power and do not follow from our nature. For it shows us that we should await and endure fortune's smiles or frowns with an equal mind, saying that all things follow from the eternal decree of God by the same necessity as it follows from the essence of a triangle that the three angles are equal to two right angles. 3. This doctrine raises social life inasmuch as it teaches us to hate no man, neither to despise, to deride, to envy, or to be angry with any. Further, as it tells us that each should be content with his own and helpful to his neighbor, not from any womanish pity, favor, or superstition, but solely by the guidance of reason according as the time and occasion demand, as I will show in Part 3. 4. Lastly, this doctrine confers no small advantage on the commonwealth, for it teaches how citizens should be governed and led, not so as to become slaves, but so that they may freely do whatsoever things are best. I have thus fulfilled the promise made at the beginning of this note, and I thus bring the second part of my treatise to a close. I think I have therein explained the nature and properties of the human mind at sufficient length, 
and considering the difficulty of the subject with sufficient clearness. I have laid a foundation whereon may be raised many excellent conclusions of the highest utility and the most necessary to be known as will in what follows be partly made plain. End of part 2. Propositions 46 to 49. End of part 2.